Welcome to the Why Your Bank Sucks podcast. My name is James Vaca, and I'm here to tell you why your bank does, in fact, suck very much. Um, surprisingly enough, today's topic is not necessarily a Bank of America one. What a shock, right? You know, sometimes there are other fish in the sea. Um, our goal is to talk about banking in general. It's not necessarily just Bank of America, although that's where I worked for 13 years, so my knowledge comes from a point of view of Bank of America. But knowing other banks have other similar issues, it's important to talk about those as well. I don't want to alienate people um, you know, from this podcast just because I'm talking about one specific bank and my stories. I think my knowledge and stories can help experiences at other banks as well. The most obvious non-Bank of America story I could think of to kick this off is uh, the Wells Fargo account opening scandal of the last few years. You know, obviously a lot of it has been resolved. You know, people were fired or had, quote-unquote, retired with golden parachutes. So Wells Fargo is trying to move on, yet I still think that there's a lot of practices that remain that are still impacting clients. And funny enough, when the scandal hit while working at Bank of America, I chuckled because, you know, all the things that Wells Fargo was being accused of, we were doing at Bank of America too, and if not more there were some things that were just egregious with wells fargo that i know that we couldn't do just because of the nature of our interaction with our management at bank of america but there are still a lot of similarities and i think it's really important to to let people know that because if someone says well wells fargo has this aggressive sales tactics guess what i did too we did too i was a successful banker I hit 100% of my extraordinary sales numbers most quarters. I got compensated with a bonus, not a very big bonus, but I did get compensated for being aggressive and being good at it. And Wells Fargo, they they were not necessarily good at what they did. That's why they had to fake accounts. Um, but they were aggressive as well, and they stopped at no cost to maximize you know, profits anywhere that they could. You know, a lot of the podcasts we're going to talk about today, and we may actually have to do a second part of, part of this because it's such a wide-ranging amount of topics, is who's to blame? You know, at the end of the day, they're all to blame, but I really want to focus on the branch aspect of it because that's where I worked at, and I'll let you know what I read and the similarities that occurred at Wells Fargo that happened at Bank of America as well. So in about 30 seconds, I'm going to talk about that, and then I'm also going to talk about some of their... Some of the you know little goals that they had with Wells Fargo, and how they kind of you know match up to Bank of America's goals while I was working there, um, because there are a lot of similarities, and I don't want someone to go into a non Wells Fargo bank and say, hey, oh wow, the grass is much greener over here, when in fact the grass is just as brown over there as it was at Wells Fargo. I'll be right back in about thirty seconds. Wells Fargo, much like Bank of America, has a code of ethics manual, and they refer to it, um, gaming in their code of ethics manual, as the manipulation and or misrepresentation of sales or referrals in an attempt to receive compensation or to meet sales goals, which was supposed to be a big no-no, you know, and what's funny is it's it wasn't a no-no for Bank of America because gaming is all that we did in order to maximize our value to our you know bosses and to the company so if someone you know what is gaming first of all 
So if someone walks into the bank and says, hey, you know, I'd like to open a little savings account. I'm just trying to save up for a vacation or something. Using Bank of America's sales goals and numbers in my head, I immediately know a savings account provides absolutely no value to my quarterly goals. I can spend 30 minutes opening that account. They can put in $1,000 in that account. I will get absolutely no credit for that. So... If I convince them and say, hey, you know what, instead of that savings account, because it only earns 0.01% interest, you know, it's it's peanuts, how about you put that in a checking account? Because if, with a checking account, whenever it's time to go on vacation, I'm going to set you up with this debit card. You can go to the ATM and withdraw your cash. That way you don't even have to come into the bank. And then you can also, you know, transfer money in and out of the account with online banking. So if you if you'd like, I'll set up online banking for you. That way you can move money to where you need to move it. You can pay bills if you absolutely have to, but you have access and you can look at your growth of your balance. I would love to set that up for you. Guess what? I would get the checking account probably nine times out of ten. I would get that debit card and I would get online banking. So is James Waka, the host of this podcast, guilty of gaming the system at Bank of America? Absolutely yes, because everyone else was doing it too. Cross-selling is one thing, but, you know, kind of goosing what a customer needs was our job. Our job was to find the next level for that person. So, first and foremost, the Wells Fargo scandal is, you know, partly about that, was to manipulate or misrepresent sales or referrals. A savings account is what someone wanted. You sold them a checking account. To me, those accounts are for two entirely different purposes. So you are manipulating the customer. So why is manipulating the customer um, better than manipulating your sales goals? You know, it, it's not. It's it's equally the same. It's blatant. It's it's abhorrent. But I was good at what I did, and and I genuinely, from the bottom of my heart, believe that I was doing the customer a favor. Yes, I was getting you know rewarded for opening up a checking account, a debit card, online banking, and the whole nine. But in my heart of hearts, I really believe that you know what. If I make this person's life easier by being able to deposit money and take money out of the ATM and actually look at their nest egg, that really does motivate people. It's like weight loss. Whenever you go on the scale and you lose 20 pounds, you're like, I'm going to work out harder so I can see that scale move even more. That's how excited I am. And, you know, manipulation of account types and everything is is just part of the banking industry. It wasn't just me. It wasn't Wells Fargo. It wasn't everyone else. It's 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 It's... The whole banking industry. It's all about we can do better. And, you know, manipulation of sales and referrals um, for bankers is key in order to meet these crazy sales goals. Now, there's a whole other podcast we could talk about sales goals and sales quotas at banks. You know, my experience is Bank of America was always the highest, but Wells Fargo was too. You know, and I think... What happened with Wells Fargo was they got a little bit too cocky. And whenever they were, you know, telling their employees, hey, we got to maximize what we what we got to do here. And once they maximize something that in that culture, then guess what? You're going to hit your goals and you're going to hit 120, 130 or more percent of your goals. And they're going to say, hey, how about next quarter we do 140 or 150? I know you can do it, James, because you're really good at what you do. Just keep on striving for greatness. And the, the funny thing about you know striving for greatness just reminds me of you know 
the great initiative that Wells Fargo was, you know, promoting within their company for salespeople. So the great initiative or going for great was Wells Fargo's um, method of motivating their bankers to cross-sell, to add more accounts, to maximize the number of products that a single customer had. So all from the top on down, you know, the not the CEO, but the people directly below the CEO was pushing the regional managers, the regional managers pushing the branch managers, the branch managers pushing the bankers, saying, you know, you got to go for great. That customer that you have in there, how many products do they have? You know, oh, they just have a checking you only have one product with them. You got you got to go for great. You got to be able to get more out of that person. And by the way, great is spelled G R dash E I G H T, like the number. And it was an internal way of kind of maximizing, you know, the products for each customer. Saying, hey, are they great? You know, because saying, hey, your customer is great does sound great. It sounds like you like your customer. But when your customer was great, it meant that you sold the hell out of that person. You sold them everything under the sun and got it. A lot of people have the misconception that going for great meant, you know, there was people walking around with eight checking accounts. Yeah, that happened and that probably happened every once in a while. But it wasn't someone that was sold eight checking accounts. A lot of people need to realize that sales goals are kind of... Um, diverse so you have a checking account goal savings account goal you know debit card usage goal online banking so each of those is considered a product so from Bank of America's perspective a checking account is a product a savings account is a product online banking is a product mobile banking is considered a product which you know getting on online banking on your phone a debit card is a product debit card usage is a product if you get a credit card, that's considered an open product. Credit card usage in the form of a balance transfer or something is considered a product. CDs, IRAs, consider that. In some banks, um, safe deposit boxes are considered that because they are bringing revenue into the bank. And of course, you know, referrals, whether they're home loans, auto loans, investments, those were considered products as well. So whenever you had a bank that was saying, you know what, each person should have eight products and you have 50 million customers, you know, 400 million products is is what they want. And, you know, that's just crazy. Reading from an article on uh, CNN's website, it says, for years, management had been pushing the great initiative, an internal goal to sell at least eight financial products per customer. And it says, the problem is that in trying to meet this lofty, many would say unrealistic goal, employees felt pressure to engage in shady and illegal practices. Some Wells Fargo workers went so far as to make up fake email addresses like no name at wellsfargo.com to sign up customers for online access to accounts. Others turned to quote-unquote pinning, the practice of assigning PIN numbers for ATM cards without customer authorization because it counted as yet another product. That's what I talked about with um, Bank of America is a debit card is a product. So if you give a, a, a card to them, a debit card, and you put the PIN, something unrealistic, let's just say it's 123321666666, and you, know, you send that card to them, they're going to get the card, and they're going to say, did I order a, a debit card? I must have. What is it? Well, 
I'll activate it and I'll have it for emergencies, but I didn't really want it. Well, you know, in some cases, the activation is the open product itself. Even if someone doesn't use it, you could at least go to your manager and say, you know what, I sold a debit card to that person. And if they come back to you and, you know, get angry, you say, hey, I didn't order this debit card. What the hell is this? You can just say, oh, you know, sometimes it automatically generates when I open the accounts, perfectly normal. I mean, this is what people did. This is what people at Bank of America do as well. So getting back to something that the CNN article says where it says Wells Fargo workers went so far as to make up fake email addresses like no name at wellsfargo.com. Guess what? That happens at Bank of America. Double underline. It happens. It's it's there. And it's it doesn't happen anymore, but it did happen back when. How do I know? Because... Online banking was always considered a product at Bank of America, even before I was a banker. When I was a teller, I would hear my bosses report about, you know, how many online banking enrollments that they have um, at their end-of-day calls. So, no name at wellsfargo.com really, really just gives me this flashback of working to open an account for someone who's already an existing client. And they would ask me about, hey, you know, I have... I have an account and I've had one for 10 years, but I never had online banking. Can you set that up for me? Sure, I can set that up for you. So I would go to open up online banking for some someone. And it'll say, there is an online ID already in use for this client. I'm like, well, they obviously they obviously don't remember that they had one. So I would go to the online banking, you know, research or whatever. And I would see, you know, I'll just use my name. It would say, you know, James Baca and his online ID is... Jbaka and you know you see that, and you go like, why would someone pick something so weird? Like that, that would be my thought. And then for email address, Bank of America's, you know, was none n o n e at bac.com. I assume that there's a BAC.com email domain for Bank of America. I've run into people that have BAML for Bank of America Merrill Lynch, and mine was at bankofamerica.com, but none at BAC.com. So whenever they would, whenever someone doesn't have an email address, you would just not put anything there, right? You would just put none or just leave it alone when you're filling out a form is what I'm saying. So the fact that they had none at BAC.com and yet there was an online ID told me that Bank of America was doing it as well. So what Wells Fargo was getting in trouble for, Bank of America was doing for years before I ever became a salesperson at Bank of America. Period. End of story. Anyone who works for Bank of America um, in a branch that's listening to this will know none at BAC.com. They have seen that before. I know they have. Period. What, What that meant, though... You know, for me as a salesperson, was I I couldn't access that online banking for that person, so I you know I couldn't help them enroll in online banking because someone else had already created a fake one, even if that that person wasn't ever going to use it, and even if they gave them a card saying, "Hey, here's your online banking if you ever needed it," it was made in order to goose sales goals for Bank of America at some point in time. So the you know, the example that they give on the CNN business side here is something that I know for a fact happened at Bank of America. So when you count online banking as a product, the reason why it's counted as a product is because showing online banking usage for those clients, you know, basically meant, hey, that person's probably not going to come into the bank as much, you know, once we max them out. 
we don't need to see them anymore so we can give them all the tools to do it online so they don't have to stand in the line at a branch and then you know when it comes to assigning pin numbers for atm cards without customer authorization i would never issue a debit card for someone who didn't want it just because of the high probability of fraud but whilst fargo was doing it and creating pins i think that was horrible because you're basically kind of lumping in a co-conspirator in Wells Fargo's um, relationship with Visa or MasterCard. So when you send them a MasterCard debit card to their address and it's not, you know, not going to be used by the client and someone else finds it and they steal the information, all of a sudden you've dragged Visa and MasterCard into it too. It becomes more of a thing because one of your partners is now a part of your unethical decision. So, you know, going for great, you know, Wells Fargo's initiative was no different than what we were doing at Bank of America. The only problem was they got caught. And working as I did in a small town bank, Socorro, New Mexico, population 8,000 for a few years at a Bank of America, I can tell you that there comes a point in time where you max out every single person within a small town branch. And guess what? That's the end of having to be there. My Bank of America branch there closed in 2013. One of the main reasons I'm certain of it was there was nothing else to gain. You know, that town is not going to grow. The people that were already banking there have everything. And if you supposedly set up online banking for them, you've already showed them that you don't actually need to walk into a branch all the time. So, you know, closing down the shop for good at that point. And the first part of this podcast I wanted to talk about was, you know, our bankers, sales managers complicit. Are they responsible for the Wells Fargo scandal? And I'm going to say, yes, of course they were, uh, but for different reasons than the ones up top. So whenever you're a small town banker like I was and you have a lofty sales goal, you got to believe in yourself. I believed in myself all the time. I knew that I can do it, not because they told me that I can do it, but because I know that I have a good heart and I know that if I believe in the product, and guess what? Even though I say banks suck, I actually believe in a lot of the products that they have if used responsibly. I really felt like I was doing a service for a lot of my customers. Here's the thing with Wells Fargo. So, you know, they have all these bankers, thousands of bankers across thousands of locations. You have them broken up into little segments, regions, or markets, if you will. So, you know, let's just say that you're in the El Paso, Texas market, and there's, I don't know how many branches of Wells Fargo there are. Let's just say there's 10 Wells Fargo branches, and there's 35 bankers that work within those branches. They all know each other. They all go to stupid events like family bowling night or something that Wells Fargo and Bank of America try to do to kind of, you know, boost up morale saying, oh, look, we're not just bankers. We're going to all wear matching shirts and we're going to go bowling and we're going to have a good time. We're going to show that we're real. We're going to show that we're a team and we're a family and all that crap. So all these people know each other. They all go to trainings together. They all go to monthly sales meetings. So one of the things that... I always ran into whenever I was working at my last branch was we were the smallest bank in terms of walk-in traffic and you know transactions that we did and walk-in customers um, to visit us in the you know in the offices or whatever and I would be going up against these big shots from the big city you know a city that's eight times the size of where I live and they have loftier goals and they have more volume because, hey, I'm in downtown El Paso where there's a bunch of high rises and there's maybe 200,000 people within, you know, so many square miles. 
and just just because of the sheer amount of numbers you have the more chances you know to get more more things so i always prided myself in beating the hell out of those people I always prided myself in saying, you know what, I want to show people I'm the best at what I do. And I would always routinely be in the top half of um, of the bankers in my region when it came to sales. Because I was good at what I did, and I meant what I said. And the people that walked into my office generally left with me cross-selling them you know, a product. Cross-selling is not entirely bad if there's a need for it for that client. If you actually find a need for it, go for it and do it. Um, I was really good at doing that, so I was successful at it. So, you know, to kind of tie it back to Wells Fargo, that's the similarity that happened. I do know that my um, my friend that worked at Bank of America with me, who became a banker at Wells Fargo, did say that, yeah, there's competition. Of course, if there's two people that are bankers in a branch, you want to beat the other person. You want to be the favored son of that branch. And then if you're, the, if you're the only banker like I was, then you know what? You want to match yourself up with other branches and says, you know what? I can single-handedly do by myself what three of you can do in a bigger city's banking center. I did that. I strived for that. So whenever I would um, be struggling, I would try to ask everyone for you know offers for credit cards or if they didn't have online banking, I would try to push it. But the difference was with the people who were at Wells, they weren't trained to take no for an answer. Sometimes you get a no and you deal with it and maybe six months later that person's going to turn around. What they were doing is they were just goosing it and setting up debit cards, setting up online banking. You know, those are the two most prominent ones in my opinion. Those are the ones you could easily fake, I guess, without getting a lot of heat for it. Um, but of course, there were thousands upon thousands of you know, checking accounts and debit cards that were also ordered as well. So whenever you, you know, whenever you have checking accounts, savings accounts, credit cards, lines of credit that were open as well, that that requires more, more people in the food chain to be a part of it. So, you know, according to the Los Angeles Times, you know, after the bank was fined $185 million in early September 2016, um, due to the creation of some unauthorized deposit and credit accounts, um, it was reported that the numbers were 1.5 million unauthorized deposit accounts and 565,433 fake credit card accounts were opened between 2011 and 2016. And then it says a year later, later estimates placed the fraudulent account number close to 3.5 million. 3.5 million is a is a nationwide thing, okay? So an average banker will maybe open three, four checking accounts a day. Well, you got to do that a million times in order to achieve 3.5 million. So if you have 4,000 branches, you do the math. You know, that's, that's system-wide. That's a systemic problem that Wells Fargo had. And a lot of that was due to the pressure of the higher-ups, of course. But it also was competition between the bankers. It's like, you know what, this this person next to me in the other office has five accounts, only have three. You know what, I'm going to try to get a home loan. Or I'm going to try, you know, Mr. So-and-so has a credit card. I'm just going to send it out. I'm going to send it out and maybe he'll think it's automatic and you didn't need to consent for it or whatever. Maybe he'll activate it and then he'll say, you know what, I need to buy tires. For my car, so maybe he'll use it, and I'll get credit card usage um, at that point. Because the the reward at the time is greater than the risk. Because you don't think about un- you know unauthorized accounts opening up fake accounts and getting fired for it or something. You're like, you know what? If I don't get my bonus, 
they're going to be on me. And then if they're on me, they're going to let me go. I'm going to get fired. So if I don't do this, then I'm not going to hit 100%. Then I'm not going to get a high five. And then they're going to be scrutinizing me. And they're going to look to get rid of me saying, hey, you know what? This guy only got 90% of his goal this quarter. Let's try to find someone who can get 100 that's the way all banks are, and it sucks really bad. It's just it's just the worst because you never feel good enough. You 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 get applauded whenever you hit a hundred percent. There's high fives, you know, people celebrate. I felt good. I felt like I had won, you know, the Super Bowl anytime I would hit a hundred percent of my quarter with days to go, you know. And the next quarter rolls around, and let's just say that it's April first, the first day of quarter two. And April 1st is a crappy day and you don't get any sales that day. Guess who's guess who's on your ass at that point in time? Your manager is saying, oh, you're, this is unacceptable. The first of the month, it's, you know, the first of the month, there's more people in the branch. And you didn't get any accounts. You need to work harder, James. You need to do better because this is unacceptable. Meanwhile, March 31st, I was at 120% of my quarterly goals. I had maximized everything I did because they told me you need to get more credit cards or you need to get more checking accounts. That's what Wells Fargo was going through, you know, going through. You know, you guys are lacking in checking accounts. Try to sell that second account. You know, if they have a friend that walks into the bank with them, offer the friend an account. And if if that person declines, then try to offer that customer who came to see you a second account saying, you know, it's a PayPal account or it's for online spending only or whatever. You know, and according to just what I'm reading on Wikipedia here, it says measures taken by employees to satisfy quotas included the enrollment of homeless and fee accruing financial products. This one is near and dear to my freaking heart because this happens and this pissed me off uh, when it came to um, banks and how they treated the disenfranchised, I will say, not just homeless. So my branch was six blocks away from a place called Community of Hope, which is a it's kind of faith-based homeless shelter. You know, it's a place where people down on their luck don't have a roof over their heads. They go to stay. You know, it's a kind of a little makeshift house. They have places to cook, you know, places to clean up if they need to. Um, and then across the street from Community of Hope is this place affectionately known as Tent City, which it doesn't need any describing. It's a it's a tent city. There's just tents all over the place. A lot of homeless people are there, you know, at any time of the year. They set up tents, but they're living there, you know, and they set up these little shanty towns with benches where they're able to hang out with people. They have access to showers and everything. And some people just don't want a roof over their head and they choose to live like that. More power to them. If they want to do that, that's fine. So Enrolling the homeless and fee accruing financial products is something that I know happened because there was a Wells Fargo um, across the street from me. There was um, a U.S. bank behind us at the branch that I was at. And they're all on the same drag. So they're all within walking distance of each other. My bank, U.S. Bank, and Wells Fargo. And I would I would see uh, my transient customers on a daily basis. They're always walking the sidewalks. It, it was not a far walk for them. So it wasn't just because, you know, we were so close to the homeless shelter, but mainly because what I learned about people who were transient is they typically would go from town to town or state to state. They would have bank accounts with, um, 
you know, Bank of America or Wells Fargo for that very reason, because, you know, we're everywhere, Bank of America and Wells Fargo were everywhere. And whenever they would go in, you know, I would run into them and I would remember them. And here, here's the thing for me. I, I don't want to toot my own horn here, but I knew my, my homeless clients. I knew their names. I knew what they liked. I knew what they liked to talk about. Some of it was gibberish. Some of it was just well thought out conversation. I enjoyed them. I, you know, I, I wouldn't always kid around with my wife whenever we would talk about it, but you know, I treated them like real people. Like I treated them like they were millionaires when they were there and I was successful in getting, you know, a checking account or a savings account for someone who was looking to start up one. I never cross-selled or I never, in a million years, I would never do that because this is what, what happened and what I would be told anyway from my transient clients at Wells Fargo and U.S. Bank. So I would open an account for them and say, yeah, you know, they would say something like, you know, those sons of bitches, they opened up three accounts for me and I didn't even know about it. And they said that I owed a hundred dollars or whatever. And I would have these really deep conversations with, with these guys. And I say, well, how did you know? And they said, well, you know, I get mail general delivery, you know, here. So I would go to, you know, the post office to go pick up my mail I would get it, and I get all these weird statements, and I would say that I owe money. I'm like, I haven't opened an account in years, and I don't know what's going on. So, I told one of my clients, "Can you can you bring one of those statements? I'm just curious to see one of the statements." So he brought a Wells Fargo statement to me, and I was just looking at it, and he said it was the the last one that he had got from them. And this guy had five accounts with Wells Fargo. This was my experience with, with one of my customers. He had five accounts with Wells Fargo. He was um, on Social Security Disability. He made 720 some odd dollars a month. You know, he didn't make a lot. You know, and they're fine with that. They live on that. They can survive on that. But I would see all these um, accounts from Wells Fargo, all their basic checking accounts, their basic $12 a month account. And I would see, you know, zero balance, $12 a month in fees, now minus $12. And then one was minus $36. And I would see this and my jaw dropped. I was like, you you realize that you have five accounts with them, right? And he's like, no, really? I said, yes, you do. So this is what I think they were thinking of Wells Fargo. So... Let me read the Wikipedia little line again here. It says, measures taken by employees to satisfy quotas included the enrollment of the homeless and fee accruing financial products. So what you do is if you had a homeless person in your office and they're there to, let's just say, get a debit card or something. I don't know. Maybe you BS them. You know, maybe these Wells Fargo associates BS them and said, hey, you know what? There's a form that you got to sign for this debit card. Let me go get it. Meanwhile, a skilled banker can probably open an account with his eyes closed in three minutes. If it's anything like Bank of America system, Wells Fargo was going to be very similar. So you go to the account opening, the checking account, and set up a debit card as well. And what happens is you, you, you print out a signature card. You print out all these terms and disclosures. You don't give them this book of terms and disclosures. Why the hell do you want to do that? Just go throw it away in the shred bin or something. Get the signature card and say, sir, for your new debit card, go ahead and sign right there. And then they sign. You give them a temporary card that's linked to the old account that they have. Meanwhile, you're mailing a permanent card for the old account. 
but you're also mailing a permanent card for the new account that you had just set up for them. And that paper that they signed, that signature card, is for a second account that you opened for them. And what happens is a week later, you know, he goes to go pick up his general delivery mail at the post office. And all of a sudden, he has two debit cards in there. And then, you know, he goes back to the banker at Wells Fargo and he goes, hey, well, what the hell is this second card? I only needed one. And they said, oh, sir, let me look at that for you. Banker looks up the card number and he says, okay, this 1234 card is linked to his old account. This 4567 um, card is linked to um, the new account that you opened up for him um, without him knowing. Oh, you know what? They just sent you a duplicate card, sir. I'm going to just cut this up. I'm going to just throw it away. And this card is yours. Go ahead and use that card. And then, the, you know, the guy will go, oh, right then. So that person leaves, you know, with the card that was tied to their main account. And what does the banker do? They probably still have possession of the card. They probably either call on their cell phone or their office phone the number to activate the card. And, of course, they're the ones that entered the PIN for that card, too. So, they'll, you know, 0000 or whatever, your card's now activated. That person got sales credit for that. And then maybe a month or two later, when Wells Fargo starts charging that homeless client a fee, and it's $12 a month, that, you know, maybe they don't look at it. Maybe they don't ever look at their statements because they know they don't you know, have a lot of money. So they get a statement, they just rip it up. But let's just say you have an astute person who actually does look at those things. Maybe he opened the statement that first time and all of a sudden he got charged $12. And then he just throws a total fit in the bank. What the hell is this second account? This is BS. I shouldn't have two accounts. I only have one. I only have one social security check. What are you guys doing trying to rip me off? This is ridiculous. Guess what the people inside the branch are going to think? Oh, that's just a crazy homeless person. No one no one should listen to him. Like, he smells. He's dirty. He's just ranting and raving, you know. He must be on drugs. He must. He just must be drunk or something. Those winos are everywhere. I know that that's why they did that. Because, you know what? I, I dealt with negative perceptions of my homeless clients all the time whenever I worked in a branch. I liked them. They, they were some of the funniest people that I ever dealt with. But yet, you know, my, some of my old branch managers from 10, 12 years ago would go... Uh, the smell and they would openly spray spray glade you know air freshener all over the bank while the clients were still freaking there so i know that you know they looked down upon them with just disgust so whenever you know wells fargo was opening up you know fee accruing financial products for the homeless i know that they're like i hate to use this analogy but it's like when someone is being you know abused physically sexually whatever whenever they're children and as an adult, all of a sudden you have that power and you're saying, you know what? No one's going to believe you. You're just a little kid. You're going to get in trouble if you tell. So with homeless people, whenever they would say, hey, I opened up only one account. You guys say that I have three. I never did that. Oh, he was probably drunk when he did that because he's homeless, you know. Those homeless people, you know, they, they're addicted to meth and they drink all the time. And he probably just doesn't remember. I know that that's what happened because I have had conversations with my homeless clients. Uh, the one that I had who had five Wells Fargo accounts notwithstanding, it was a normal conversation. So maybe you could tell in the tone of my voice that how I, I'm just really upset about that. Reading that on Wikipedia and reading that on a Vanity Fair article just really, really ticked me off. And it, it's something that was prevalent for bankers because they said, you know what, that's the easiest account I'm going to get all day. I'm going to get the Wino's account, the homeless person's account, because even if it's 
coming back on me, I can just say, hey, they're homeless. They don't know anything. And <laughs> what can I say other than that's just something that is just egregious. And in about 30 seconds, I'm going to come back with you with another topic because I got, I got to cool off. This is just so maddening to me. So I'll be back in about 30 seconds. All right, now that I calmed down a little bit, um, you know, cooled off just a tad, I, I wanted to kind of get into, and I, it seems like I'm going to have to do a second podcast uh, about this just because there's so much to talk about, and we're already about 36 minutes into this podcast. Um, can it happen at Bank of America the way that it did at Wells Fargo? I'll get into this topic right now. Can it happen the way that it did at Wells Fargo at a Bank of America? The short answer to that is no, we can't. Can they cross-sell? Can they upsell? Can they offer you products that you don't want? Yes, absolutely. All banks do. Bank of America is number one for that. Wells Fargo is 1A. And they still are 1A even after all their scandals. So could it happen at Bank of America? I'm going to say they have put protections in place to make that not happen. So in order for it to really happen at a Bank of America, you got to have everyone in on it in a banking center. you got to have the banker who opens the account um, in on it because you can't hide your account openings because there's reports at the end of the day says hey james you open up five accounts can i have five signature cards to show that you're you know that your client signed five of them so you'd have to turn in work at the end of the day that shows that yeah you did talk to these people and you did sign something so could it happen at bank of america no because what happens is if you're doing paper-based signature cards likely you're turning them into a manager or assistant manager and if you don't have someone sign those cards, well, then you're going to have a missing card. You're going to have what's called a defect, and you're going to get in trouble. You can get a write-up for not having that signature card. They have these little things in place to show that they're trying to protect against fraud. So, you know, you have to turn in your work at the end of the day, you know, just like a lot of places. So could it happen? I would say no, because here's another thing. Let's just say that you open up these fake accounts at a Bank of America and... You signed, you know, like you signed for the the customer, whether it was on an iPad and how they're doing it now at most Bank of Americas or on a signature card paper. Here's the, here's the, the simplest thing, you know, you know your worker's handwriting, you know when they wrote something, you know their signature perfectly, you're a banker, you're trained to look at those things, so... If I'm handing in five signature cards and it's signed by five people and all of them kind of look like my writing, they're going to question that. You know, the bank manager doesn't want to get fired, so they're going to escalate it to whoever they want to to say, hey, you know, James opened up five accounts, but it really looks like his handwriting on all the accounts where the customer is supposed to sign. I don't know. So it couldn't really happen in that sense there. The only way that it could happen inside a branch now at Bank of America is if the manager was in on it too. Or whoever's in charge of the paperwork because, you know, secondary like audits of signature cards and signature documents are not going to be done um, the way that you think. There's not going to be some other independent person looking at all the paperwork and go, hmm, I notice patterns in the signatures. No, they're just going to, they're just not going to look for things like that. It's upon the manager to do that and to say, hey, you know what, I think something fishy is going on here. Because they don't want to lose their job as well. So it couldn't happen at a Bank of America branch the way it did at Wells. Because at Wells, from what I was told, they were responsible for their own signature documents. Um, whether they kept them on file after that, I know they probably had to scan them and upload them to some central directory. But 
it couldn't happen at Bank of America just because they have people assigned to certain things and that person doesn't want to lose their job and unless they're in on it they're going to be on you with that so i you can breathe easy to say that it probably won't happen at bank of america unless you just have a very crooked bank of america branch and when it comes to unauthorized um credit accounts you know there was half a million of them allegedly with wells fargo there's a lot more that gets involved in that. You know, there's the issuance of the card. A lot of the times, the banks will send an email saying, Congratulations, Mr. Baca, you got a Bank of America or Wells Fargo credit card. Please activate it whenever you receive it. So it's not just a random card coming in the mail and then someone going, Ooh, I should activate this because they must have sent it by mistake. But hey, I'll take it. No, they're going to get an alert maybe the day after the, the card was opened illegally for them. They're going to get another reminder to activate their card by email. They're going to get the card. They're going to activate it. And then all of a sudden, they're going to get correspondence. They're going to get balance transfer offers. They're going to get how to use your credit card emails, you know, that the bank will send or something. So there's going to be a lot of things that come whenever Bank of America would send you something to let you know that you did it. It's just a way of covering their butt and more power to them. They're they're doing a good job with that. So I think they've limited the scale of how an individual banker can kind of impact a banking center by doing fraudulent activities. I think it's nearly nearly impossible. It's not impossible, but it's really hard to do unless there's a whole gang of people within a place that are trying to do it for their own gain. Now, you know, getting back to the Wells Fargo part of it, I think, as I mentioned, bankers are uber competitive. So when it comes to, you know, opening accounts for the homeless or opening accounts for people who don't know, I think just, you know, the the final part of this is, you know, getting back to where the email was a key part of it. You're not going to get a lot of people to open up um, online banking. Okay, older folks, it's hit or miss. You'll probably get an older folk, someone over 70 years of age, maybe one time out of 10 to open up online banking. Some of them are very proficient at it. Some of them will say, I don't want to deal with any of that nonsense. I want to write checks. I want to do things the old-fashioned way. Well, if you're writing checks and doing things the old-fashioned way, then Wells Fargo, you know, opening up a fake online banking, there's no recourse for that. So even if that person, even if that person drops dead and their next of kin comes to help, you know, close out their accounts or whatever, it's never going to be mentioned that that person had online banking. It's never going to be mentioned that their online banking is going to be closed at that point. What the banker can do for someone who's older is set up a fake email address like that, none at BAC.com or no name at WallsFargo.com, whatever it was, and set up online banking. Go to the public library or go somewhere to activate their online banking because typically it would take one or two enrollments, uh, one or two sign-ins, excuse me, to enroll that person in online banking. So there's no way of tracking that. So I know if there was incentive in online banking and these older folks that will never know otherwise that they were set up with online banking, that's what associates would do. And associates found a nice little way of kind of goosing their numbers because it was shooting fish in a the barrel. They're like, I could open up online banking for these old folks all the time. They're never going to know this and I'm going to get away with it. And they probably did. You know, they they probably absolutely did. There's probably still a million online bankings that were open by bankers in branches that are are not known by the customer themselves because they were set up at a time where, you know what, they needed a couple of hundred, 
um, dollars worth of value, and that's what they call online banking. It's worth X amount of dollars in value for the quarter, your overall quarterly goal, to get them over the top. And all those little things like that add up over time. So, you know, seeing how that's possible, that's probably the, the easiest one to get away with for, you know, Wells Fargo at the time. And probably for people at Bank of America, too, because, you know, if you know someone is so out of the loop that they're never going to set up online banking, an associate could easily do that. An associate can easily find a way to consent for that, um, you know, without someone else knowing. And that's sad. It, it's just it's just the fact that it's possible. And I think that's where de-incentivizing online banking is important because if banks want to go paperless if they want to go tellerless and they don't want to exist in the branch sense anymore and having you know just atms or mobile deposits exclusively the the account should only be open unless online banking is set up at that time or just make it as optional as possible and don't incentivize it because you're giving people a loaded gun you know code of ethics codes of ethics are really important to banks so they say but they, they choose, you know, how and when to enforce it. And I think what happens is with bankers, you know, they, they already know kind of the boundaries. It's like when you're a kid, you know the boundaries of what you can say and can't say to your parents or what you can do without getting grounded or whatever. You know how to kind of push the lines a little bit, push the envelope. With Wells Fargo, they knew how to push the lines and get to their goals without without knowing, you know, without someone knowing until it became millions of people. So collectively, you know, millions of people got found out at the same time, but individually, it'd be very hard for someone to kind of spot little just egregious things like that. Reading this article in Vanity Fair, um, there was a banker from Wells Fargo, his last name is Hambick, and he was talking about the the strive for greatness, you know, the going for great eight products for each customer. And um, it mentions, it says, the slogan, however, was experienced by bankers on the ground, such as Hambick, who was the person in this article, was more hardcore than hokey. You know, it sounded fun. Oh, you're going to go for great. But no, that was a way of life. That was a company line. And here's this quote. It says, we had a lot of longtime customers and a good staff, but sales pressure kept mounting, 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 he says. Every morning we had a conference call with all the managers. You were supposed to tell them how you were going to make your sales goal for the day. And if you didn't, you'd have to call in the afternoon to explain why you didn't make it and how you were going to fix it. It was really tense. Achieving sales goals wasn't easy. Hambick was in a small town and there were seven other banks in that small town. Welcome to the world of James Baca, host of this podcast. So every morning we were set up with what's called a run rate. So essentially, your goal for the month is 80 accounts, and there's 20 business days. So your run rate, theoretically, is four, but what they do is they bump it up to five. They say, you know, we could do five a day, because if you do five a day, you're going to get 100, and then you're going to get 125% of your goal, which means thousands of dollars more for you in bonuses. That's it, not true. So you you would have, every morning, you'd have a reiteration of, this is what you're going to get, and this is how you're going to get it. And you tell me how you're going to get it. Do you have appointments, James? Do you have people walking in? Wells Fargo felt that way, too. So every morning they dealt with that. And then you would tell your managers how you were going to kick ass. You were going to kick ass, and you were going to do really well today. 
say you have a bad day, say um, it was raining, say it was snowing, say that there was a bad car accident by your entrance and no one could get in. Um, towards the end of my bank closing, Clint Eastwood was filming a movie two blocks away from my branch. I couldn't get into my bank directly and you know I was working there. So I knew a lot of people who would see the roadblock for the movie shooting. They would just say, you know, screw it. We'll come back tomorrow. I don't really need to do anything now. We'll come back another day. And maybe you'd have a really crappy day of one or two accounts. Those calls in the afternoon, I hated them. James, uh, how many sales did you have? Well, I had two. Two? But you were supposed to get five. Yeah, but I know it was raining and, you know, Clint Eastwood's filming a movie. No excuses, James. Now you got to get you got to get eight tomorrow in order to hit your goal. If you don't get eight, you're going to be falling farther behind and it's not going to look good for your month or your quarter. So you got to step it up. Do better, James. This habit guy in this Vanity Fair article, I'm sure, went through that every single day. We're in a small town where there are seven other banks. People not necessarily are going to pick you. They're going to pick, hey, I have a friend who works wherever or... You know this place sponsors the the high school scoreboard, so I see their I see their logo all the time. So I'm gonna go there because they seem like good people. Things like that happen in small towns, but those calls at the end of every day I used to hate. I used to hate them with a passion. So you know for the Wells Fargo associate who hated the early morning calls of oh James you're behind you gotta step it up, and then the afternoon when you had a bad day and you're told how much you suck every day you need to pick it up this is ridiculous this is unacceptable for your branch you only had two accounts you should have had five and you know what you're gonna have to get eight tomorrow otherwise you're gonna be behind you leave home you leave work and you go home and you just hate yourself. I used to come home and just sleep because I was so stressed about that and I'm like. I did a good job. I helped someone get their first account. I had a good conversation about home loans. It's not going to materialize today, but it'll probably materialize in the next couple of weeks. But I was told that I didn't do anything. So you, you tell me that you know those bankers don't feel that pressure. So you know what? I, I used to say this, and I used to say this to my branch manager, who was not my boss. She was you know basically an equal to me. I would say, I'm going to hit my goal so I could shut them up. I said I'm gonna hit my goal so I can shut them up. I don't want to hear their I don't want to hear their voice. Okay, I'm gonna get ten accounts today, and I'm gonna get ten accounts, and I'm gonna email everyone in the market that I got ten accounts today. That way they can't say anything on the call. That way they won't even have a call. I used to do that, and I used to love that. Not because I was sales pressuring people, but because you know what, I was actually finding legitimate things for my clients to to get, and I was really really proud of it. So for these poor souls at Wells Fargo. A lot of the times, it was they were maximizing what they want just so they didn't have to hear their boss's voice. So, you know, yeah, ethics come into play when it comes to opening up fake accounts. But guess what? They were just so damn tired of hearing all that stuff that the higher-ups would say about how you weren't doing anything when you knew you were working hard. That guess what? They were going to just find any way to get that done to kind of achieve what they needed to do just so they wouldn't have to hear that stupid voice again. Do you know how many Saturdays... I would go into, you know, at Bank of America at 7.30 in the morning on Saturdays to do one hour of training and role-playing over the phone because instead of hitting, you know, my 15-account goal, I got 14. I missed it by one, and my punishment was I can never have an early Saturday. I mean, I can never be at home on Saturday to have breakfast. I'd have to have an early Saturday at work. I'd have to sit there and listen to people talk about how I couldn't do things right, and I would have to practice my sales pitches to my fellow bankers who didn't know how to sell freaking accounts apparently that sucks
That makes you hate your job. That makes you want to not do that anymore. And that leads to unethical things. The things that happened with Wells Fargo Associates um, are very similar to Bank of America. And knowing that feeling, and I hope you can tell in the tone of my voice, that that's something that really, really bugs me. Because, yes, bankers are responsible for that. They want to show people up. They want to show their com- competitors, their their colleagues, their fellow bankers. They want to show their boss up. They want to show that they can do that job. But at the same time, those people from the top are pushing all this sales pressure to the to the bankers to make them feel that way. They're driving them to a life of crime at the end of the day when it comes to it. So that part is just maddening. And as a as a banker who trained three other people in my market to become bankers, and they're doing a really good job, the ones that are the the one person that's still there, two of them have left the company since. All of them hit their goals, all of them hit their bonuses all the time because I showed them how to do it my way, and my way was working uh, really really well, except it wasn't the way that Bank of America wanted. You know, and that's not the way Wells Fargo wants things to done. They have a strict way of doing it. And if you don't do it that way, well, then you're not going to maximize what you can get. As a person who trained associates as well, I can tell you that it's important to feel successful when you're doing that and not feel like crap. But you know what? It's an abusive relationship for the sales managers um, to their regional managers. The regional managers will just put all this burden on you. And you just hate yourself and you hate life. And... All you can think about is, how am I going to shut them up? How am I going to get this done? How am I going to get the bonus so I can pay for my lawn? How am I going to get this bonus so I can take my kids to Disneyland? That 85-year-old lady in my account, she doesn't have online banking, does she? No, she doesn't. No name at wellsfargo.com. Online ID, old lady 1234567. Password, 1234567, old lady. You have an online banking account and you did something unethical and all of a sudden you get credit for it. Why? Because they they told you that you're not worth anything if you didn't get that. That sucks, folks. That's one of the reasons why your bank sucks. My name is James Baca. Thank you so much for listening uh, to this part of um, what sounds like it's going to be a multi-part uh, podcast about Wells Fargo. We'll get to another one of these in about a week or so. But in about 30 seconds, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen with the rest of the podcast the rest of the week. So I will be back in about 30 seconds. Thank you so much again for listening to the podcast. Later on this week, I'm going to have another mini podcast about something that you see within a Bank of America location and go, why is that the way that it is? So stay tuned for that. That'll be uh, following this particular podcast. I'm going to do a podcast later on in the week about... The paper check. I'm literally going to talk for minutes upon minutes about a paper check. Banks don't want them anymore, supposedly. Banks put holds on them because they don't like them. Yet, why do they sell them to their older customers for $26, if not more? Why are they charging $2 for a check register whenever they don't want you to register checks because everything should be digital? The paper check is the most interesting thing in my area just because... There's so many businesses that still rely upon it. There's so many people who still love to hold them. So many people who still love to write them at the grocery store. Yet their bank is telling them, no, we want you to do things electronically. Here's this debit card. Here's your digital wallet. Here's all this. The paper check is um, 
a really interesting topic that I could probably go on for a long time about. So stay tuned for that one later on in the week. But of course, the mini podcast is coming soon. Follow us at Bank Screwed Us on Twitter, at Bankers Sucks Pod on Twitter. My personal Twitter account is at James B. Is Right. I got the podcast, of course, listen to previous episodes. I have a few books coming out called Bank of America Nearly Made Me Homeless and I Work There. A book for younger people in banking called Beer Money. And also my Bank of America Complaints book that will um, benefit a charity is coming out very soon, so be on the lookout for that. Once again, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. It's really important um, for me to talk to you about these things. I think they're really, really pertinent topics to have. Yes, Wells Fargo's um, story is a couple years old now. But in order to correlate it to what I experienced at Bank of America up until the time I got let go six months ago, I can tell you that there's still a lot of similarities and it's still going on at Bank of America. It's probably still going on at Wells Fargo, although to a much more lesser extent. And I think if you've listened to this podcast for now, what is 56 minutes and change, um, I really appreciate you listening to my rantings and ravings and, and understand that what I feel about um, my homeless clients or the older folks that were taken advantage of with online banking or debit cards or anything like that, then it means it means the world to me because those were the parts of my clientele that really enjoyed working with me and I enjoyed working with them. And I never wanted them to feel taken advantage of, yet they are the ones that are most prominent in this Wells Fargo um, account opening scandal. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, be on the lookout for another one of these very soon. And I hope you listen to the next edition of Why Your Bank Sucks. You have a great day.